Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And we are back, baby. (laughs) Episode two, baby. Don't call it a comeback. We've been here for two episodes now. (laughs) And like two years. And two years. It's been, it feels so good to be back. It does. And everybody's super excited. Yeah, I am loving hearing everyone's messages and seeing like all the response on Instagram. It's been so cool. They're like, where have you been? Were you okay? I thought you died. Were you all right? Uh, Even like before we, so in the interim when we were not releasing any episodes, um, we, when we took our year off, like it was still interesting anytime we would post something that inevitably someone would comment and be like, are y'all good? <laughs> Where are, are you? <laughs> we miss you. <laughs> I know. I know. It's been really good to hear from everybody. Uh, we also have some, re- we didn't, we totally forgot to talk about this last week, but uh, we've got some new content on our Patreon, which is exciting. So we're switching things up a little bit for season two. Um, and we're going to have some some additional fun Patreon content um, where people are going to kind of get to hang out with us while we watch and review some movies, kind of more on the cult side of things. I think people really enjoy that side. And we've also got a new recipe. Yeah. Super excited. You've got to become a Patreon to find out. I mean, eventually we'll tell you what it is. Yeah, we're going to kind of dangle that carrot a little bit. Yeah. But... Um, you know, if you miss the pasta recipe, you literally missed an era and I feel bad for you, uh, but we are keeping that exclusive to season one. Yeah. I think that's only fair. I agree. Couldn't agree more. In fact, right. You missed it. You missed it. If we don't stand for nothing, we fall for everything. So (laughs) fall for season two and get our new recipe before you miss it. And season three, we'll change it again. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to change your life. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and if there's other recipes, I think that we can get a little bit more funky and into it with the recipe thing. Mm-hmm. I think the whole entire nation is now consuming savory oatmeal. And I would just like to say you're welcome. Which was not even like an official pod without an odd recipe. That was just you being an influencer. How's it feel? Oh my God. <laughs> my dreams are coming true. I am a <laughs> 32-year-old influencer. Um, also single-handedly keeping Quaker Oats afloat. Yeah. Um, except for now, like, I don't know, like the past six months, there's these weird Quaker Oats advertisements. Have you seen those where people are like, you can tell they sent the same content script to like all these different influencers and it's like, pick a, put your favorite Quaker Oats recipes in a bowl and pick one out. I've seen like 10 different people do that. And it's clearly like a campaign. I genuinely feel like that's the most specific targeted advertising that has ever existed because I have not seen any of it. No. Oh my God. It's just me. (laughs) It's content exclusively for me. Quaker Oats was like, listen, shout out to Allison. Let's do this whole Quaker Oats thing. And then we are going to make sure that she's the only one who sees it. And then maybe she'll talk about it on her podcast podcast without an audience without an audience can you believe that we just sit here and (laughs) spew this nonsense to no one into the void into the void into the woods also the fact that we have just spent however long talking about recipes just reminds me what foodies we both are and like thinking about every time we travel like gearing our travel around what restaurants we're going to eat at 
which then took me to the restaurant in D.C. that had the food that looked like the baby stingray. The baby stingrays. <laughs> it was so like we, a Cuban-Peruvian restaurant. It was very eclectic. But the thing about it is, you lived in D.C. forever. And we walked for like 10 miles. It felt like we walked. I mean, no, pr- listen, we, there were no 10. Apple watches at the time, but we're going to assume it was like 10 miles. It was, we walked forever and there was no yeah. food anywhere. No, we definitely, after having lived in DC for forever, I don't know how that happened. Cause there's <laughs> literally a restaurant on like every corner. It was terrible. And then we, when we, then we went into this restaurant and Carrie Ann had ordered some type of, uh, was, it was like a, pot sticker or lasagna kind of thing that it's unclear unclear. this time but so then i sent her a meme from across the table and it looked just like a baby stingray yeah and it it, we'll we'll have to post it for sure um they look like tiny little happy raviolis they do it was very (laughs) cute it did not taste good no unfortunately i was not a fan but you know, maybe we can figure out that recipe, perfect it, and mm. it'll be season three's recipe is baby stingray ravioli. Baby stingray ravioli. Warm gerbil ravioli. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Hmm. Let's workshop that. At least let's workshop the name. Okay. So, we have also been getting a lot of requests for certain topics for history and psychology, which has been really helpful because... CA and I both have a running list. So anybody who has ideas, anything that feels right in your heart, send us a message on Instagram because we are cataloging that shit. We want to know what you want to hear about. I think we're just super thrilled that you even care what we're talking about. Um, If you want even more control, feel free to become a Patreon where you can pick a topic and mm -hmm. we will shout you out and give you so much praise Mm -hmm. uh, for picking the greatest topics. And you'll have a handwritten note from me and CA to you. From yep. Russia with love. And stickers, if you would like stickers. There's also, of course, the uh, reviews on Apple Podcast, which we had a huge influx of, um, a, a you know, initially, and people were super great about that. So yeah. if you're new, if you're just picking up on season one, or whatever season we're on, uh, super duper, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Tell us what you think. Uh, just say Hi. We'd love to hear from you, and we may or may not read it on air, mm. especially if it's poetic. Do you remember the poetry I do. one? I do. I think we all do. I still feel like we should get that framed, because it was beautiful. Oh, that'd be nice. A nice, like, watercolor. Maybe that's what I will give you at the end of season two Ooh, as a gift. That'd be great. That'd be fun. I will get you a bottle of champagne. Excellent. <laughs> that sounds like a good trade, right? Yeah. Speaking of which, we're recording this in the morning, so there is no champagne or even a truly, but we do have coffee. We do have coffee, thank God. There may be a coffee break mid-episode. I'm actually really hungry. Stay tuned. Are you? Yeah. I may or may not have stopped for a pimento cheese biscuit on the way over. Oh, from where? Uh, Bojangles. Bojangles? Bojangles mm. has an excellent pimento cheese biscuit. Shout out to Bojangles. Let us know if you want to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, they're looking, they're really in the podcasting world. Uh, they really need more vegetarian options. But that pimento cheese biscuit, yeah. man. I know that you don't eat eggs because of allergies, but mm-hmm. they do have a good egg and cheese biscuit. I've heard. I've mm-hmm. heard rumors. Yeah. Super, but. super duper good. Speaking of egg and cheese biscuits, what are we talking about today? <laughs> <laughs> smooth transition. Super smooth. Um, so the absolute hardest part of knowing that you're doing a series is having to wait from week to week to learn more about it and like fighting the urge to 
immediately Google everything. Yeah. This week, instead of Googling all things North Korea, which is what my brain wanted to do. Sure. I decided to read about a society that I figured was probably maybe a little bit similar, kind of. Ooh. Sort of, possibly, to North Korea. Okay. When we get back to your part, I guess we'll figure out how similar they are. This is my first Pod Without an Odd book review. (gasps) Oh my god, you're the best student ever. I had so much fun. Plus, I could read, like, voraciously and ignore everything else and call it podcasting, which was great. Healthy escapism. Exactly. Okay, so uh, let's see if you can guess the book. Okay. I don't know if you read it or not, but certainly someone who's listening has, if you have not. And if you have, then great. All right. Key points, topics. Totalitarianism. Okay. Totat. Uh, Mass surveillance. Okay. A repressive regime that, like, observes people and their behaviors within society. More broadly, it's a look at truth and facts within society and how those can be manipulated. We will talk torture, we will talk propaganda, and we will talk omnipresent governance surveillance. Do you know what book this is? Uh, I see. I was thinking about movies the whole time. (laughs) Um, Because there's a lot of... No, I don't. Okay, so our first book is the Orwellian novel, Ah, 1984. 1984. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It was almost Animal Farm, because I felt like Animal Farm also... Because that's the Written by George Orwell Mm would have been a great pick, too. Mm -hmm. Because that's also got some totalitarianism, propaganda. Yep. All kind of similar themes. We're going to talk more about it. But first, let me tell you a little bit about George Orwell. Oh. Whose given name was Eric Arthur Blair. Arthur? Arthur. Arthur. I said author, but I it's was Arthur. like, author is his middle name. He was destined. I know. Manifest destiny. Is he a, what is Arthur? What kind of animal is Arthur? A mouse? An aardvark? Aardvark? What is Arthur? Arthur the aardvark? Is he an aardvark? I guess is what I'm trying to ask. That's a great question. Um, I don't know. Which would make Animal Farm make <gasps> a lot of sense. What? Listen. How did you make Signed, that connection? Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm so glad to be podcasting <laughs> with you. I am a literal genius. <laughs> you just cracked all of society's codes. The answer is 42. <laughs> and Arthur is an aardvark <laughs> named after Eric Arthur Blair, better known as George Orwell. Wow. Yeah. Orwell actually comes from uh, Mr. Blair's favorite place, which was a lake Mm. or a river or some body of water. A body of water. It was a body of water. Okay. So Orwell, which I'm going to probably call him throughout the rest of this because that's how I know him, published the book 1984 on June 8th, 1949. Mm. So several decades before 1984 oh mm -hmm. and it was his ninth and final book he died in 1950 oh i didn't know that yeah so he is an english novelist essayist journalist and critic you may also know him by his novella animal farm much of his writing is social criticism and opposition to totalitarianism and he is in uh, great support of democratic socialism Mm -hmm. shout out to bernie sanders oh who's like my favorite democratic socialist All right. So Orwell's work remains really influential and popular in political culture. The adjective Orwellian describes a totalitarian and authoritarian social practice. And 
It denotes an attitude and policy of control by propaganda, surveillance, misinformation, denial of truth, and manipulation of the past. Like, those are really common themes in all of his writing. Mm -hmm. So he was born in June, June 25th of 1903, and died January 21st of 1950 of tuberculosis, which Mm. I have a typo, and it says tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Still bad. Yeah. Not great. Still kind of the same... So, yeah, for sure. So, a quick synopsis of the book. The year is 1984, or somewhere around there. We don't actually know, because you can't trust anything in this book. Question, what is Taylor Swift's album, 1980-whatever? 89. 89, cool. (laughs) Very different. Yeah. And it is 1584 on Amazon.com. Very specific. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Everyone, don't rush to Amazon to get 1989 by Taylor Swift in honor of this episode. It is actually a, it's all a metaphor. Her album was, you know, about 1984, but she couldn't call it that because of copyright. And uh, it just has a lot of the same themes if you really dig deep into it. Was Taylor, is Taylor Swift also a democratic socialist? Um, and anti-totalitarianism. I feel like we all should be if we're not. I don't know. I haven't talked to her in a while. She won't return my texts. That's disappointing. I know. Let's get LJ on it. Okay. To do some investigative journalism. Got us. it. Okay. So the year is 1984, not to be confused with 1989. And there are three remaining world powers, Oceania, East Asia, and Eurasia. And these three powers are in like a perpetual war with each other. mm so, in comes our protagonist, Mr. Winston Smith. Oh, it's a good Great name. Great name. Good name. Love Strong the name. name, Winston Smith. Strong lad. Yes. Winston lives in London, hmm. in a country now known as Airstrip One, which we actually know as Great Britain, hmm. uh, which is in the totalitarian superstate of Oceania, which also includes America and, like, North America. Parts of South America, parts of Africa, I think. Oceania is led by Big Brother. Big Brother is a dictatorial leader supported by an intense cult of personality manufactured by the party's thought police. Oh, thought police. Love and hate the thought police. (laughs) Great name. Fantastic band name. Good. Yeah. Uh, Horrible people. So Winston, our guy Winston, is a mid-level worker at the Ministry of Truth who secretly hates the party. Mm. He creates small thought crimes, word of the day, uh, when he begins keeping a diary and, like, generating his own thoughts and then writing them down. He starts a relationship with his colleague, Julia. All romantic relations are, like, off the table. They do not want any romance in Oceania. They're like... Interesting. That ties a little bit into something I'm going to talk about can't wait to hear about it Mm -hmm. i have a feeling that a lot of this ties into it and i tried really really hard not to google 1984 and north korea Mm because i figured there's a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. but after this bet your bottom dollar that's exactly what i'm doing bottom dollar and then winston and julia tried to join a resistance group called the brotherhood spoiler alert he gets arrested and subjected to months of psychological manipulation and physical torture and is released once he learns to love big brother Mm. so like I hate to ruin that for everyone. Um, it's still worth the read. Like, it's a phenomenal book. Mm-hmm. 
Like with any dystopian novel, the big question is how did we get here? Like, how did society get to this point where things are able to happen? Like, how is Winston living in this world? An Italian essayist, Umberto Eco, said, quote, at least three quarters of what Orwell narrates is not negative utopia, but history. Mm-hmm. So kind of like Margaret Atwood, a lot of this is not made up. Like a yeah. lot of it's pulled from pulled. different things. So Orwell based some of this on Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, and other totalitarian re- regimes that he was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so much like The Handmaid's Tale, as you're reading 1984, you're able to not only understand like how it's possible, but how some of this has already happened and is currently happening. So like you see some of it in like our everyday lives. Yeah. For example, we now have the TV show Big Brother that mm-hmm. was actually based like the concept was based on the novel from 1984 mm-hmm. which first coined Big Big Brother. Right, we're all familiar with that term. Exactly. And it all comes from Orwell. Mm. So the masses have relinquished their right and ability to think freely. In exchange, they have security and physical well-being. So the party provides um, its people with, like, food and clothing rations and a place to live and, like, all of these things. But in order for those things to exist, they have given up their right to free freedom of thought. Thought, right. Yeah. So Winston feels like, and honestly may be, the last human being who wants to use his independent mind. Oh. Like, uh, actually, Orwell almost named this novel The Last European, or The Last Man in Europe, hmm. because the way he was writing it, like, you genuinely wonder if Winston is the only person who still sees the party for what it is, mm-hmm. rather than being completely bought into this right. idea that maybe they're not great. It reminds me in Wally when they're all riding around on those little things and everybody's just, you know what I mean? I've never seen Wally. What? I, I never saw it. Oh my goodness, you have to see it. I know. I worked at a summer camp for a minute and would start it like during movie time mm-hmm. for kids and then never actually got to stay and watch it. Well, one of the pieces is that they're all living on the ship and everybody is dressed the same. They're watching the same thing on TV. They're all like the TV tells you like what to eat, what to drink. Yeah. And it's just like everybody's just kind of queued up to yeah, absorb yeah, yeah. that information and go execute it. So, um, yeah, so that's that's what it reminded me of. And that's actually almost exactly what this is like. So they imagine having these, like, tele screens, I think is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, Teletubbies. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, like, every morning sound an alarm. So everyone wakes up at the exact same time. And then it makes you do exercises. And everyone has to do the same exercises. But remember, this was written in 1949. So this is, like before web cameras Mm -hmm. were this is before the internet right so orwell yeah like in his day and time this was a sci-fi novel this wasn't like possible um but the surveillance system that they have in oceania is like a two-way camera so you can see the person broadcasting and then they can see into every tv screen in -hmm. your home we're going to talk more about that. Okay. But yeah, they like give you your morning routine and you have to do your stretches and they can see if you're not doing your stretches. Oh, wow. I would yeah. hate that. I, I think know. that's what everyone's worried about with Alexa. I think so too. Mm-hmm. I also now have an Alexa. And I do too. <laughs> she tells me what time it is a lot. <laughs> uh, she tells me, she reminds me of Scoop Litter Boxes. Oh, does she? Yeah. Oh. 
I set up an alarm. So now every day she makes an announcement that it's time to scoop litter boxes because I have ADHD. Yep. And I forget that litter boxes exist until they get really bad because <laughs> they can't see them because yeah. they're in a closet. Oh. Anyways. Okay. So in Oceania, there are four ministries that kind of rule everything. There's the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Love, the Ministry of Peace, and the Ministry of Plenty. And the Ministry of Magic. And the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> Obvi. <laughs> uh, plot twist. The anonymous author of Harry Potter was friends with, or maybe Orwell came back to write Harry Potter. Huh. Considering we don't know who wrote it. Right. Unclear. Unclear who wrote it. So glad they did. Mm -hmm. So glad they also distanced themselves from the writing of Harry Potter, or at least we did. Anyways, Winston works at the Ministry of Truth, where his job is to rewrite the reports and newspapers of the past to conform with present reality. This happens across all sectors. So books, newspapers, advertisements, anything that you might see can be rewritten at any point in time to make whatever is happening right now match whatever they predicted or said happened in the past. Mm. So nothing can be believed. For example, one day the government had said they had to cut chocolate rations from 30 grams a month to 20 grams. The next day, Winston changed the newspapers to say that chocolate rations had actually been increased to 20 grams. So people were like celebrating the fact that things were going so well in Oceania that now they get 20 grams of chocolate. Whereas like a few days before they had 30 grams and it had been dropped to 20. Wow. But Winston. That's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. It's like gaslighting at a massive level. Yeah, the highest level. It's like if all Mandela effects were actually real and being, we were all being gaslit by the country at all oh my times. Goodness. But Winston's the only one that seems to notice or care. And he's the actual one changing the information? And he's the actual one changing some of the information. So they have people all across the Ministry of Truth, mm -hmm. ironically named, who like is making these changes. I think it, that, it, I think that just speaks to the fact that ethics is so cross-culturally applicable like it, it has nothing necessary it's just a feeling Ooh, like yeah. doing the right thing right is it doesn't necessarily have to do with like where you grew up whether you're religious whatever it's just it just is we're actually going to talk about ethics in a second too oh. i love when you're on the same page so uh there's emphasis that since big brother has taken over everything is getting better like that's the general idea mm -hmm. is that you know since you've entered this totalitarian regime look how great life is mm -hmm. you get more chocolate today than you did yesterday where actually it's less mm -hmm. so here's another quote although the official account is that oceania has always been at war with eurasia Winston remembers just four years before that they had actually been at war with East Asia, who has now been proclaimed their constant uh, loyal ally. Oh. So in newspapers, like Winston vividly remembers about four years ago, they were at war with an entirely different uh, world power than now who they say they're at war with. But the government says we've always been at war with Eurasia. We've never been at war with East Asia. That is so hard Th that is quite the feat to be able to convince everyone yes. that they did not experience something. And they do it so well and so seamlessly. Ugh. So, like, they've, like, stripped everyone's humanity. No one's actually human. No one can talk to anyone else anymore. But uh, Winston just, like, receives a paper, and it tells him what to change. Mm -hmm. So he goes in, and he makes, like, a quick little change, and then he burns the paper 
that they gave him in a like it's called a memory hole so like you throw it in there and it's just gone forever wow so there's literally no evidence like he can't keep it he just there's no evidence that he's changing anything Mm -hmm. it's just it always is so like there's a party slogan about um he who controls the past controls the present Mm. and i forget the second part of it right now but like it's super manipulative yeah and just really fascinating that's wild but it's kind of like you know we see articles now about like who did what oh so i saw this like report where someone was asking a trump supporter no he asked why did he think obama didn't do anything during september 11th oh or something like this and the guy was like, I don't know, he was probably out smoking a cigarette and just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Obama wasn't in off, like, Obama wasn't the president during right. 9-11. Like, it's all about how you frame the question, too. It's how you frame the question, but it's also, like, what kind of manipulative mental gymnastics do you have to get to mm-hmm. to first believe someone that you dislike was in office mm-hmm. during a time when they weren't in office mm-hmm. and then think so poorly of them? that you're like, oh, they probably didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Because How do you Bush not was remember, in office. How do you not remember who was president during 9-11? It's a great question. That's wild. Super wild. So how do you brainwash a society? I'm so uh, glad you asked. I did. I'm writing notes. <laughs> in 1984, the key surveillance is called the telescreen, which is basically a TV with two-way cameras and mics. It only shows one channel of news at all times, which includes propaganda and wellness programming. This was actually based on technology from the 1930s in Germany, where they were developing a video phone system. So, mm. like the wellness piece is an interesting one for me. That is not in North Korea at all. No, just the propaganda. Well, so the wellness piece here is like getting up in the morning, make sure you stretch because they don't want you to be a burden on their medical system. Right. That makes so they're sense. Like, that they control your European. food. They control your exercise. Like you're allowed to go on certain walks, but you have to either do it with a group. Like it's suspicious if you do it by mm. yourself. Mm-hmm. But under the telescreen like controls all of this. Right. Did you say under his eye? I did. <laughs> <laughs> we can just merge all dystopian novels into right. the same book and be done with it. It'd be and really call long it book. current day somewhere. Right. <laughs> Quote, in 1949, when the novel was written, Americans watched, on average, 4.5 hours of TV a day. When was this? 1949, when the novel was written. That makes sense. You get home from work and you watch mm-hmm. TV with your family. In 2009, it was almost twice that. Shit. And in 2017, TV watching came down, but only slightly, to eight hours a day for most americans so that's more time than americans spend sleeping like we're watching tv or consuming media more than we're sleeping at this point in the u.s information transmitted over television screens came to constitute a dominant portion of people's social and psychological lives yeah so thinking about this and i'm like as i was reading it i was really has like very seriously considering unplugging all of my TV Mm -hmm. and my computer and like (laughs) throwing them out. 
But television in the United States teaches a different kind of conformity than in the novel. They're not seeking to uh, control or get people to love Big Brother or belief in a party. In the U.S., an argument could be made to conform to a system of consumption and capitalism through advertising, focusing on the rich and famous. So, like, it promotes this idea of productivity through messages um, around the meaning of success and virtues of hard work. So we conform by measuring ourselves against what we see on TV including like what clothes we have and the relationships that we're in our work ethic, which has set a quote standard of habitual self-scrutiny. Oh, so even big brother has a reality show and it's an experiment in controlling and modifying behavior. Mm -hmm. They have employed psychologists on this show because it can be so like triggering for people who participate But, quote, by asking participants to put their private lives on display, shows such as Big Brother encourage self-scrutiny and behaving according to perceived social norms or roles that challenge those perceived norms. Basically, every area of American life is watched now. Like, we're watched on public transportation, Mm -hmm. uh, in schools and supermarkets, hospitals, public sidewalks. Law enforcement officers wear cameras. Their vehicles have cameras on them. And we accept this as like a legitimate form of observation and often feel safer because of it rather than less safe. Mm -hmm. So like you can see. Oh, that's a good point. Isn't it creepy? Like when you really start to unravel and unpack it, like we are now the most, I mean, we're not the most watched society. There are other, like I know China Mm -hmm. does a lot of like observation of their citizens. Like this point in history, we're the most observed. Yeah. And, like, how that can be used is a little scary. So, Orwell, when writing this book, did not believe that 35 years after its publication that the world would be ruled by Big Brother. So, written in 1950, published in 49, he did not believe that in 1984 we would be ruled by Big Brother. Mm-hmm. However, he did believe that 1984 could happen if, quote, man did not become aware of the assaults on his personal freedom and did not defend his most precious right, the right to have his own thoughts. The thought piece is super interesting because that seems to be the next kind of progression. Mm-hmm. If, if you're outwardly being observed, yeah. you know, the, the, it would seem like the next progression would be, like freedom of speech is obviously, I, I guess it exists, but not right. everywhere. But um, yeah, what are you thinking about? And I guess it's the belief. Like, are you believing in what the you're system saying and what yeah. you're saying and what how you're acting, or are you just playing the part? Well, and I'm thinking about like TikTok. So, mm-hmm. TikTok. If you are in elementary or middle school and watching TikToks, you're being fed other people's thoughts and opinions and beliefs. Yeah. And it used to be that, like, you were fed your parents or your community's thoughts, but also our parents do encourage, like, we can have back and forth conversation Mm -hmm. where we are encouraged to generate our own thoughts. You can't have a conversation with TikTok to to do that. So basically, you're just getting information in without any of that processing. So are we losing some of that, like ability to generate our own thoughts mm. because we aren't because right. we're just repeating the things that yeah. we've heard there is a yeah critical thinking is a is a, a wild and weird thing sometimes yeah. and i think it's also like the chameleon effect sometimes i don't think that we know exactly what our own thoughts and beliefs are 
Oh, absolutely. It all gets murky. It does. It does. And many of our thoughts and opinions and beliefs were implanted in us, like by our families and cultures and the media. But um, kind of a mild way of thinking about that is social conditioning, which Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about before. And some of it's like harmless or even kind of helpful, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're told to go to school. We're told to get good grades. We're told to find a good job. Like that's helpful. That's, you know, raises you to um, be a productive member of society, whatever that means. But like that also hurts people who aren't able to do those things or um, who haven't done those things. And later in the season, we'll talk more about social conditioning and propaganda. Like, I have a whole thing on it that I Mm -hmm. need to start collecting stuff for. But we have already recorded the Milgram obedience experiment last Mm -hmm. season and the Ash conformity experiments Mm -hmm. last season. So if you simply cannot wait to listen to more social conditioning stuff, go back and listen to those too. Yeah, little plug for season one. But 1984, the book, is a whole lot of mental gymnastics and mind games. Orwell introduces the idea of doublethink, which is the process of indoctrination in which subjects are expected to simultaneously accept two conflicting beliefs as truth, often at a like that that don't work with their own memory or sense of reality. So by the end of Winston's torture, we all have an understanding that reality only exists in your brain. Mm-hmm. So the example that's given is if you believe you are floating off the ground. And I believe that you are floating off the ground. And I believe that you believe you are floating off the ground. Then you're actually floating off the ground. Then I'm floating off the ground. Right. Because reality only exists in our brains. Yeah. It doesn't, like, it's outside of the laws of physics. It's outside of, like, this experienced reality because it only exists in your brain. Because your brain's how you process all of this external information. Exactly. So... This idea of doublethink is 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is what we know, but 2 plus 2 can also equal 5, or 2 plus 2 can equal 3. But it's not enough to say it, you have to believe it in order to not commit thought crime, and there's a lot more to unpack there. But mm-hmm. the idea of doublethink is like you have to hold two conflicting things and believe wholeheartedly in them both being true. Wow. And they're often like in direct defiance of what you actually see and believe. I wonder if that's why language is so difficult for people to absorb is that you're, you know, especially as adults, you're so used to Mm -hmm. these letters, meaning this sound and things like that. I wonder if that's. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Absolutely. And how we understand and navigate the world around us and then being presented with other things Mm -hmm. and believing them both to be true yeah yeah i think that that's a good example all right so let's bring this home um it took everything in me of course not to google north korea and do a comparative (laughs) analysis um and i know after hearing your part we'll do intersections at the end and like really get into the nitty-gritty but from what i remember what strikes me the most is that while our news can be obscured and twisted we have a lot of options by which to consume media and access to multiple perspectives and opinions. So, yes. like, I can travel to Germany or Japan and not only learn about their culture and, like, what's working for them, but also how they perceive American culture. Mm-hmm. Like, around the world, no one liked Donald Trump. Right. Except for maybe the leader of North Korea, which I hope <laughs> we talk about at some point. Um, but 
like having that ability to kind of triangulate truth or triangulate reality, I guess, is what allows us to still be able to develop our own thoughts Mm -hmm. and our own opinions and beliefs. When in Oceania, much like I assume in North Korea, there is no other by which you learn about yourself. Um, And there's no one to confirm what you remember or how you remember that. So being closed off is what gives the party power. Uh, Should folks know what happens on the outside, we would assume that the control would be lessened, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the theory. But people who don't know any better don't know that Oceania has not always been at war with Eurasia or that they're being controlled through propaganda. Their truth is their truth because they believe it and the people around them believe it. Mm. Just like perception dictates reality. So overall, great book. What stands out to me in this particular dystopian novel is how well Orwell takes you into the mind of every character. So like you genuinely understand each perspective and are Mm. uniquely terrified when you understand what the party is trying to accomplish and how they do it. Right. Oh, I like that from a psychology perspective. Oh, it's so cool. So you, in fact, by the end of the novel, like almost start to believe it yourself. Mm -hmm. Equally troubling to me is how much you realize the level of control that exists over us in our current society and how much control is actually possible. And we don't even live in a totalitarian state. One article I read quoted the Minister of Propaganda of Nazi Germany. Mm. So his name is Joseph Goebbels. Okay. But in a German accent. And he said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's powerful and deeply scary. And that's a lot of what this book is. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't really know how to end a book report because I've never done one before, but let's talk about it. One thing, yeah, uh, uh, the more normal things appear to be, the more likely you are to accept them. Yeah. For some reason, it just took me to, like, over the past, fad diets have always existed, but over the past, like, 10 years, we've seen, like, keto Mm -hmm. and, like, all these weird, like, like very niche yeah. kind of but but then all of a sudden all these people are doing it because it just seems so normal even though right. it's kind of a wild well i mean concept. and we kind of grew up our parents generation was like the south beach diet generation atkins. right and atkins uh-huh. um and then weight watchers like had its day yeah so it's taken what a less than a generation for it to become so normalized mm-hmm to cut out like huge parts of your diet for the sake of health Mm -hmm. yeah that's a yeah yeah oh i have so many intersections that i want to just go ahead and say but i'm going to save it for my part well done thank you so much we got to get to intersections like asap okay let's take a quick break and when we come back we are talking about north korean defectors part two i can't wait All right, so today is part two for North Korean defectors, and today I'm going to be talking about two, two or three specific kind of short, shallow chats about um, some folks who have defected out of North Korea. Okay. I thought one thing to start off with that might be helpful for, for you know, listeners and you and I to kind of visualize this is to kind of talk about the dates that the each of the leaders have been 
in, I don't want to say in office, but in power. Sure. <laughs> um, so Kim Il-sung was the first. So he uh, he reigned from 1950 to 1991. Okay. His son, Kim Jong-il, was from 1991 to 2011. Okay. And I remember, like, the new guy coming in. Yep. Kim... Uh, Kim Jong-un, December 2011 to present. Got it. Okay. So each of these is the son of the other. Right. Right. What I didn't realize is that the North Korean calendar starts on Kim Il-sung's birthday, the first guy. Ooh. So they have a whole different calendar system I didn't even realize. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Uh, not to make this entire thing intersections, but in 1984... They have 13 months, not 12 months. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, they also have like a 13-hour clock rather than a 12-hour clock. Why? I don't know. Interesting. Why would North Korea's calendar start on someone else's birthday? Unclear. Exactly. I don't know. Because he's the beginning of the... Uh, The sun rises and sets with him. Mm -hmm. Got it. Pretty much, yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So last week, we discussed the history of the split of the Korean Peninsula, along with communism, Mm -hmm. Karl Marx, Mm -hmm. and some information about the living conditions of North Korea. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one first. Um, But we are going to start with some additional statistics that I didn't get a chance. We didn't have time last week. And then we're going to dive into the separate defector stories. Ooh, okay. So... Between one and million people starved to death in North Korea during a famine that spanned three years from 1995 what? to 1998. What? Yes. I mean, I know how we didn't hear about that. Wait, how do we know about it now? Well, we'll kind of get into it. Oh, okay. A lot of it's from the defectors, though. Gotcha. People who have left. But those who died accounted for about 10% of the country's population. You're kidding. So wait. About a million, between one and a million people, you said, right? Between one and three million. One and three million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's about 10% of the population, mm-hmm. we assume. Yes. Okay. Immediately following the famine, the number of individuals who escaped from Korea was the largest to date. Everybody was trying to get out. Between 100 and 300,000 North Koreans defected, seeking refuge and resources. The number has fallen significantly since then due to strict stricter borders and and of course the cost the cost to defect is is pretty high i'm sure Mm -hmm. the most common strategy for north koreans to defect is across the chinese border about 76 percent to 84 percent of defectors interviewed in china or south korea came across the northeastern province bordering china china is often the most accessible way to exit the country but it is not the most desirable because China is the largest continu- continuing aid source to North Korea, and a lot of people don't want to rock that, but like people in right. China don't want to rock that boat. Sure, China refugees uh, or China refuses to grant refugee status to North Korean folks. So if you're caught in China as a North Korean, they deport you back to North Korea. Shit. Yes. So if you're caught, it's basically a death sentence. Yeah. Because yeah. you know that you're going to go into a prison camp. Or right. they're just going to kill you. Right. Yeah. So once they escape into China, then they have to get to somewhere else that will help and support them. Correct. And is that most often South Korea or are there other places? South Korea is the, that's the one that has probably the most robust refugee program for okay. North Koreans. 
Yeah, wow. we'll talk a little bit about it. Okay. But South Korea is like the... I'm just imagining like coming out of North Korea where like you don't know anything about the outside world. Mm-hmm. Like how startling must it be? Yeah. And I can't wait to hear mm-hmm. like the, the stories that you're going to share. But like... Yeah going into china and then south korea literally and can you imagine a north korean defector like ending up in canada yeah and just being like huh Mm -hmm. what a strange world yeah we will talk about one we've got kind of spanning through time we've got the first story i'll talk about is she defected um in the 90s and then we've got two stories that happen a little bit sooner, more relatively recently. Okay. Um, but one of the North Korean defectors, her name is Yanmi. Mm-hmm. She lives in America now. Oh, okay. So we will get a mm-hmm. lot of that perspective. Mm-hmm. But the other two live in South Korea. How disorienting to even like have to change your mind around the calendar, though. Like, yeah. And that's the, the mind least control. Of your that's the what? That's the least of your problems, too. Yeah, the mm-hmm. least of your problems, but also so disorienting. Oh, for sure. Like, it's super mind controlly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm ready. So, between North and South Korea, there is a demilitarization zone that runs the length of the 38th parallel. We kind of talked about that yesterday for about 150 miles. Okay. So, the 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 width of the zone is two, two and a half miles. Okay. One, you know, one and a half you know, roughly on each side of the border. Sure. So half of it's in North Korea, half of it's in South Korea. So South Korea, like we mentioned, has a fantastic refugee program that gives assistance to those who have defected from North Korea. They help to establish these individuals and connect them with any family members who may have also defected. The demilitary military, that's the hardest word ever. It's so hard. That word, that zone um, has a military presence 24 seven, 24 hours a day. And there's landmines. Shit. That are in between for basically two and a half miles. There's a bunch of landmines. And there's Korean, South Korean and North Korean army presence that basically stand in front of each other, probably the distance between you and I right now. And all they do during the day is just stand post in this demilitarization zone. So there's always a, a military presence during or kind of in that area. Mm. It is an interesting It's terrifying. Okay. So we're going to talk about Ji Yin. She is the first story that we're going to tell today. Uh, Ji Yin, uh, like many other North Koreans, knew very little of the outside world. The only information that was provided to her was the North Korean propaganda videos. And um, the documentary TV specials that they did, which showed exclusive clips of of outside of north korea right so they would show i mean they're obviously very anti-american they would show propaganda that would disparage people from thinking highly of americans and sure and things like that because you've got to make north korea seem like it's the best place to be so that people won't want to leave mm-hmm. yeah oh 100 this part's fascinating she described the way that they rationed the food based on status So she described that wives and students were allotted 300 grams of food per day. So this is the amount that the government is deciding. Wow. So wives and students, which is the lowest, by the way, (gasps) 300 grams of food per day. High schoolers are 400 grams. So students like young, like young kids. Yeah. Um, High school students are allotted 400 grams. College students are 500 grams. 
and workers, people in the workforce, are granted between six to 700 grams per day. I can't, I mean, I can't even fathom like what amount of food that is. Mm-hmm. Not a lot. <laughs> Let's pull out the kitchen scale and figure this out. It's, it's really not a lot. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot. She just and and she described how like biscuits and desserts and and like dessert was not a thing. The only time that they ever received any additional anything was on Kim Il Sung's birthday, where treats were kind of distributed, you know, just to celebrate. She remembered when the government stopped the rations in the mid nineties. Remember the famine, mm-hmm. right? So we're talking like there's no there's no food. There's just literally nothing. There's You're literally no longer being given your rations of food. So what did they do? So she remembers seeing dead bodies piling up in the streets. Wow. So this movement did a couple things. It created an underground trading system. Okay. And it this is kind of when you start seeing the younger generation having distrust of the government. Right. Because they, they are now growing up in a time. The, the parents' generation was... They're going to provide for us. Everything is working as planned. Right. And then now all of a sudden people are growing up in an environment where... Um, they're not providing. They're not providing. So um, there's a little bit of pushback that kind of starts happening, but you just do whatever you can to survive. And we'll talk a little bit about what some people had to do. So she remembers seeing you know, people who died and just piled in the streets and in the marketplace. And after her uncle had passed away... Her father's health condition began to grow worse. Her father told her that she must save herself and her younger brother and leave without him to escape the country. Oh, my goodness. How terrifying. I know. How old was she? Have you said? She was young. She was in her teens. Okay. Jian's father told her that she needed to go. And so Jian left her father alone in a cold dining room with only one bowl of rice. And he was presumed to have starved to death soon after. So all she could do was leave him. And that's sad. That's heartbreaking. I know. So she met her brother near the Chinese border and uh, began to cross the border at around midnight. So when they got about halfway across, they heard gunfire behind them and someone was yelling, stop, stop. Um, there were eight shots fired, but they did make it safely across. They approached a nearby house where a gentleman let them stay overnight and provided him, they, they, he fed them rice and eggs. Um, and he told them it wasn't safe to stay. And that the next day, because of the gunfire, the North Korean army was going to start looking for, right. for, for them, for somebody. And that they would search the town. The man also gave her some additional advice. She said, if you want to save your brother, you must marry a Chinese man. Okay. So China has been known for purchasing and trafficking North Korean girls into China. That's how a lot of people escape. Well, which is, I guess, not surprising because of the one child policy and the lack of women mm. in major oh. cities in China. Like there's a. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I, I forget the exact statistic, but men far surpass the number of women. So human trafficking is a huge issue. Mm hmm. Her little brother encouraged her to get married. She was like, you know, he was like, we all got to do what we got to do. Uh, and that he, he said he'd be fine on his own. But unfortunately, he was captured and returned to North Korea. 
Shit. So Ji-Yin basically entered into this kind of agreement uh, and was basically sold to a man. Um, And she remembers her husband's mother, so her mother-in-law, saying, We purchased you, and you must now work off your debts in the fields. She began a life of waking up at 4.30 in the morning and working all day until dark. Eventually, she discovered that she was pregnant, and after 12 hours of labor, she gave birth entirely alone. (gasps) Yes. Oof. On her son's 100th day, the Chinese man approached her and told her that she wanted to sell that he wanted to sell her baby. She picked up a knife and said, "If you touch my son, I'll kill you." She escaped that night and for the next 5 years, her and her son moved from city to city in China, avoiding the police. Until one night, uh, she returns home from working, um, and there were several police officers at her home waiting for her. The officers arrested her and she was sent back to North Korea. No. Yes. I know she ends up in North Ki- North uh, America, so... This is not her. This is a different person. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. This Damn. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping for a happy ending. I know. The last words that her son said to her were, Mom, why are you leaving me? What? I know. He's five. He doesn't... He has no idea. That poor baby. So she was sent to a prison camp in North Korea where she was isolated in a small room with 50 to 60 other female prisoners. Mm. The bathroom was only a bucket in the corner. Like your worst fucking nightmare. Literally hell on earth. Literally. And one day, GN realized that she had an injury on her leg. Um, Her temperature spiked to over 100 degrees, um, and her leg began to ooze a yellow pus, and her condition became worse and worse. She had sepsis. She was, yeah, she was not good. So they didn't move her to a hospital. No, no. But instead, they moved her to an orphanage. Huh? Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because she was underage. But, yeah. Wait, she's still underage at this point? Oh, that's What's a good point. She might be on the cusp. Okay. So either they moved her to an orphanage because of her age or just because that was another place that's just where to they put moved people. Her. Okay. Of course, the, the orphanage is run by the government. But she knew that this was her only chance to escape again. This time, she decided to use a broker. And the broker usually only worked exclusively with women because women equal money in China. Sure. He told her that he could get her across under the condition that she would be trafficked in China. And she agreed. So the night comes that they're going to attempt for the second time to get her across. To get her across. So it was her the broker, and two other refugees. There was a younger woman who was also going to be trafficked and an older man. Uh, so you can also pay brokers to go get your family members too. So oh, okay. the, the male, the guy was not there to be trafficked. He, he was, was probably just... Someone paid to some, get yeah, him. Yeah. So in uh, the night, they crossed over a river. All the rivers have armed guards. So these brokers have these relationships with these armed guards and they bribe them basically. But if you don't know that they're coming, these guards are gonna shoot you if you try to cross yeah. this river. So they cross over the river, but, and you know, they're trying to get to the to the next major city, but you can't walk along the roads, right? right? So they kind of creep along the road, but her leg is injured, but yeah. nobody knows that. Okay. Um, she kept that a secret because she, she was afraid want, that yeah, they wouldn't they would say no. take her. Mm-hmm. So they decided they're gonna take a taxi but the taxi driver gets suspicious. The taxi driver asks them a ton of questions. And, you know, 
think about you are a taxi driver on the border on the Chinese border of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Part of your income is going to be to turn people turn in. people in. Yeah, right. So the taxi driver is asking a lot of questions. He was asking why anybody couldn't speak Chinese except for her. Because she lived there. Because she lived there. Oh, okay. So she's trying to explain to him, oh, you know, they grew up in the Korean, they grew up in Koreatown. They didn't go to high school. She's just trying to bullshit the, you know, the answers. But she had lived in China and had to survive. So she learned Chinese. Right. You know, of course, at this point as well, the broker is also kind of in danger. Yeah. Because that's also... Would the broker not benefit from knowing Chinese? The benefit... Yeah, probably. Okay. you know, learning a whole new language is tough. Sure. So, she told them that they were on the way to the hospital because of her leg, and she showed him her leg, and he was like, ugh. Gross. (laughs) So, legitimized the story a little bit. So, after being delivered safely to the broker's house, the broker puts her and the girl upstairs in this room... They wake up the next day, and the other girl is gone. She'd already been sold. Mm. But Jian wakes up and goes downstairs, and the broker says to her, uh, you saved my life last night, uh, and so I'm going to save yours. And <gasps> he let her leave. What? Yes. Okay. Yes. So she was able to reunite with her son. Oh. She found her son, um, who had been living, of course, for years without her, remembered her, Right. Which is good. Yeah. Um, they were able to reunite and they moved to the UK. Oh. Yes. So, and it was so a little bit she of a happy. successfully defected twice out of North wow. Korea. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Wow. What a story. I know. Has she written a book? Because I feel like I need to read more of her story and her thoughts. and Not that I know of, but our next. So the, the next story I'm going to talk about is, and I'm. apologize if I mispronounce this, but Yanmi Park, she is an author. She has written uh, two books, one called In Order to Live, A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom. And the other one is called While Time Remains. So you can find her books on Amazon or, you know, anywhere you find your books. I saw an interview that she did uh, last year. So very recently, she okay. defected when she was 13. So this is a much more modern uh, case. She's about she's about our age. Oh, wow. Maybe a little younger. Okay. Yeah. So the, the notes I did for her, I actually had just watched this interview when I was waiting for you when you forgot your charger and you had to go home and come back and get it. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching this interview and I was like, let me just take down a couple notes. Her insight into what North Korea was like is really fascinating. And it's also interested... interesting to see it from more of a modern lens and she grew up in this post famine society where she's like fuck this shit yeah so if she's about our age she's been out of north korea for like 17 years yeah for a while okay she said that living in north korea was not like living in another country that it was like living on another planet wow she said that there's no electricity like the, the electricity is limited so much. They use the rate. Some you hear about some people illegally listening to South Korean radio, mm-hmm. but you know your lights are off at a certain time every night. It's not like you have the freedom to just use your power as you want right. to. They're trying to reserve every resource they have. Shit. And in fact, when you look at North Korea from space, it's dark. Mm. It's wild. It's like the darkest place on Earth. Wow. Yeah. 
She said that she was taught that she wasn't Asian. She said that they were taught that they were Kim Il-sung's race. So it's a very wild uh, concept of not only are you not a part of this larger thing, but you are so specific, right? North Korean. That is your entire identity. She was taught that Americans uh, don't have birds because we ate them. Huh. Also, also birds, birds are real. real. <laughs> and they had this whole narrative around Americans. They would refer to them as American bastards. Like, that's just one word, American bastard. And so when she was even learning math in school, it would be like, if one American bastard and three more American bastards went and did this thing, how many American bastards do you have? So it's like this ingrained propaganda, even just in down to mm -hmm. school, like your education. It's like, even one plus one is two. Or is it? Or two plus two equals five. Right, exactly. That's what I was trying to say. I knew what you're I knew where you were going. She said that there were fifty different classes, which is interesting because it started off as communism and just gen- equality across the board. And now there are like all these different social classes. And now that there's a bunch of different social classes. So I would even argue that, you know, when we heard in our previous story about the rations, Uh I mean, that in and of itself is creating these differentiations and values. And so that does make total sense. It's impossible. Right. In a society like this, how, how can you not? But you can't marry up. If you marry down, you're down forever. Like there's no option to get out of get out of the class and this is all from her perspective but no well it's probably the closest thing we have at this point oh 100 she said that she didn't know what love or sex was so her parents weren't saying i love you there was no concept of romance or love kissing she didn't know what kissing was like that's something that you think of as being such an innate like human desire Imagine a whole society that that's been bred out of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and you're not seeing, you're not romanticizing about your wedding since you were five. Like that whole like feminine uh, narrative isn't there. The only, the only realm that you're exposed to that is like love for your country and love for the leader. It's so insane. That's part of the uh, 1984 thing, too. Like, they don't have any sense of love or loyalty, even. Like, children or parents are taught to like their children, Mm -hmm. but children have no loyalty to their parents in 1984, which is really interesting. And, like, sex is not supposed to be done for any reason other than to serve the party and, like, create new comrades. Mm. Super creepy. Sorry. Very creepy. Super duper creepy. But it sounds like maybe a similar thing. Like they've taken all the humanity out of an entire population. Mm-hmm. Or just like the most basic, like you said. Yeah, human instinct. Yeah. She said that if you have, like, let's say your family's raising cattle or something. Um, if a cow dies on your property, you can't eat it uh, because you don't own anything. Everything is owned by the government. Owned by the government. So if you do eat it, they'll kill you. Oh, yeah. So the basically what happens also they don't eat cows. It's it's weird like they're harvesting the milk but they're not necessarily eating the beef. From my understanding it was like the the beef was eaten by the upper okay. upper crust. Uh-huh. And that the rash like beef was never included in the rations that they wow. were given. Okay. 
so yeah so if, if a cow dies on your property you have to like call the the people and they'll come get it and mm-hmm. they'll distribute it to the upper class shit She recalls a cycle of seeing dead bodies on the side of the road and seeing rats eating the bodies. And then she would see children chasing the rats to try to catch them and then eating the rats. (gasps) Yes. And then the children dying from diseases because they ate those rats. And then the cycle just like being just like this vicious cycle of disease. That's disgusting. Isn't that so sad? That's terrifying. But you, I mean, you, you, you say... You know what do you do if the rations are cut off? You have to you have to do you do what you have, you to, have do. to do what you have to do, and hope that someone survives. Mm-hmm. She had her appendix removed without anesthesia, and she said that the needle that they used to like inject her with you know whatever kind of whatever she they used the same needle for everybody. So she was she said something like people in in North Korea don't die from these you know, from Alzheimer's or these diseases that, you know, exist, they die from, um, you know, basically malpractice, malnutrition, and starvation. Yeah. And and the diseases that come from... Uh, like sharing needles. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about the AIDS yeah. epidemic. And like, tetanus. And tetanus and... And all those things that are... We talked about the plague. The plague could have been prevented. If the plague's not going to happen in the same way because we have antibiotics. Right. Takes me back like to that. typhoid Mary and like washing your hands. Oh, just like, wash your hands. Simple like things that can predict and save lives. I forgot You're not about typhoid able... Mary, man. Yo, that was a great episode. That was a good one. Yeah. I miss her. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, shout out to season one where we're just like recalling all these great episodes. I know. Go listen to season one if you haven't. After she got her appendix out, she was 13. No anesthesia. The interviewer of this of this interview that I saw, the interviewer asked, what was it that made you go? Yeah. And she was like, I was so hungry. Mm. Yeah. She's like, I saw these lights across the way and I thought maybe there's food there. So like the most, the other most simplistic, you know. Human desire. Human desires. Need, like she's, yeah. she's starving. Literally. So does she talk about her relationship with her parents at all? So we talk about her mother a little bit. Okay. So when she defected, um, her mother went with her, and they told them to lie about their ages. Not under. And now she says she understands why, but it was because they were going to be human trafficked. Yeah. So her mother and her sister go, and they have this horrible couple of years where they're being trafficked and separated. And you know, even then, you know, she said that she went to sleep with shoes on her feet. Because she, you know, you don't, you don't know. Yeah. And um, the question was asked, like, you know, was that worse? And she was like, no, <laughs> it wasn't worse. Shit. I know. How bad do things have to be? Right. right? Mm-hmm. To step into so much of an unknown and then to have that unknown be another form of hell. Well, and she said that hunger was the worst feeling that she'd ever had. Way worse. The, wow. You know, uh, she's like, people can die from from hunger. Yeah. And, and, and the, it's something that we will never understand, mm-hmm. you know? It, yeah. It's, it's wild. Yeah. Later, like a couple years later, she meets some Christian missionaries from South Korea. And the Christian missionaries say that if she converts, that they will help her get to South Korea. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, 
you know, I, if you had told me to worship the water or the stone over there or this table, I would have done it because, you know, at this point, she's like, why do I have to believe in something yeah. in order for people to help me? But, you know, whatever you want, you got it. Yeah. We're um, going to talk about missionaries at some point because that's a whole oh, other thing. God, that's wild. Yeah. So she does. And they say, OK, great. We're, we're going to go the Mongolia route, which people don't even do anymore because it's so dangerous. Yeah. So this is February. It is negative 40 degrees. What? Yes. In this desert. She has to walk like a hundred, hundreds of miles across this desert in negative 40 degree. Shit. And so they say, if you survive and nobody shoots you and we make it to South Korea, you'll be free. Once she gets to South Korea, she's detained uh, because the South Korean government wants to make sure that she's not a spy. So they're asking her these basic questions. You know, how do you take a subway train? How do you use an ATM? And she's like, I don't know. She's like, I thought that literally What's there an was... ATM? She's like, I thought that there was a person in there that was giving you money. She's like, I don't know what a bank is. You know, they didn't have yeah. currency. People in North Korea weren't able to own cars. So she talks about this time in her life being overwhelming in a much different way. Because she goes to, she goes to college and they're like, well, what do you want to be? which college do you want to go to? And she's like, I have no idea what to do with all of these choices. Yeah. Cause she's never had to make any choices. Cause every choice has always been made for her. Right. Right. And, and she talked about that there was a little bit of comfort in that. You I know? can see that. Yeah. I mean, we talk about decision fatigue these days. Like when you walk into a grocery store and you have a million things on your list and you have like 30 options for each thing on your list, like mm -hmm. it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Yeah. But she does end up going to school. Um, and she got invited to speak at a youth conference in Ireland. And the speech that she made went viral, which mm -hmm. led her to write her first book. And from then she was that book was published in uh, the Penguin Publishing. Yeah. Um, and from then she's just used her platform to to speak, you know, on behalf of other defectors and kind of tell her story. So, you know, you should definitely check out That's her incredible. Books. Yeah, I will. The last one, we're going to kind of end on a little bit of an upper. Oh. Yeah. This is the story of Oh Chung Sung, who was born in 1992. And we don't know his exact birthday, but he was born in 92. And Oh's father was a major general in the North Korean army. So his family enjoyed a very comfortable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's it's a much different narrative than the other two. Right. Um, who were women who were, mm -hmm. like, sold into human trafficking. Correct. And, okay. Yes. So we already start with a little bit of privilege here. Yes. So while his parents came from the generation of supporting the government and believing in the communist vision, those who experienced the famine during their youth had a very different idea. The government had indeed not been able to provide for them as advertised. A new generation was born. One that would start to bend the rules a bit. And what's interesting about O's defection is that he is said to be one of the only few who, quote, impulsively defected out of North Korea. How do you impulsively defect? I'm going to tell you. Okay, please do. So on November 13th, 2017, this is recent. Oh, shit. Yes. That's super recent. O was out uh, with some of his military friends. They were doing what all 25-year-olds do. They were having a little drink. Just a couple. Mm -hmm. Maybe more than a couple because he was hammered. Sure. Drunk enough, in fact. Uh, also, he was driving, which is not great. Don't do that. Yeah. Uh, drunk enough, in fact, to miss a government checkpoint. So he drove right by a checkpoint. It would be like, imagine going through the toll 
uh-huh. like the easy pass toll and like not realizing that you yeah, done it until yeah. it's too late. Um, so once he passes the checkpoint, he realizes that he would most likely be killed if he returned. If he returned. So what does O do? Impulsively, drunkenly, defects. He just keeps driving. No one shoots at him. No oh, one. Oh no, no, they shoot at him. Oh, okay. So as soon as he misses the checkpoint, everybody's like, uh. Um, so they start chasing him. Is he in a car by himself? Or He's is... in a car by himself. Okay. So he begins chasing. He's being chased by military personnel, people who he knows. His peers are chasing I bet him. He sobers up real fast. I'm at sure. This point. Well, um, he becomes distracted and he crashes the car. So, uh, so less so, so, but trying to sober up, probably, probably. Um, so he, he crashes it into like a little ditch surrounded by trees. Luckily, he's the luckiest. He's super lucky. He drove directly into the military demarcation line. So he's like at the demilitarization <laughs> zone. <laughs> so he's not at the line line, but he's like, you know, he's, he's close. Right. So he starts booking it. Can I tell you, I'm imagining, like, this demilitarization zone is, like, the space when you're playing dodgeball. Yeah. Like, where, where the, they, you can't yes. throw a ball at the other person yeah. because they're too close to the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. like this, but way worse. Sure. Bullets instead of dodgeballs. Correct. So, again, mil- his fellow military personnel are firing guns at him. And he is shot, not three, not four, but five times. Damn. So he collapses. But luckily, he is inches... He's still on the South, or excuse me, still on the North Korea side, but he is, he's like almost there. So, and this is all on video, by the way. What? There's video of this. Yes. Cause they have surveillance uh, on the South Korean yeah. side and it's wild to watch. You're like, go, go, go. <laughs> um, but members of the South Korean military crawl on their bellies and drag him across the line. They <gasps> basically reach over and drag him. And then he's transported by helicopter where he receives medical attention. He lost half of his blood supply and he did get a blood transfusion and immediate surgery. During his time at the hospital, they found that he was infected by a parasitic worm. Ew. Yeah. So I imagine that would be really common even with those who are in much more privileged lives. Yeah. They're still not receiving medical attention like they should. Right. Um, so I thought, I thought that that was really interesting to note is that he's still sick. Right. So it is unknown what happened to uh, his family back in North Korea and whether they were punished for his crimes, which is really sad to think about. Yeah, but I bet it's super, super common. Mm-hmm. Well, and last week we talked about the three-generation rule. Yeah. You know? Oh, so yeah. It's, well, uh, and of course, I, you know, having just freshly read 1984, like, that would definitely have been something that would happen in 1984, too. Yeah. It's like you're punished if your, you know, kid or parent does something. Mm-hmm. But O li- now lives in South Korea where he is starting over his new life. Wow. Mm-hmm. An upper, and also, I'm like, he's the luckiest guy. I'm luck, unlucky, luckiest guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was born in North Korea. So yeah. there is that part. Yeah. And we don't know what happens to his family. Right. But to accidentally defect and end up. Right. Okay. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. Is wild. Yeah. Do we know anything else about him? No. I think that he, he kind of lives a, a low life. Um, I'm sure. Although, of course, that video went viral. So. So as low of a life as he can live while right. still 
kind right. of being a viral celebrity. I imagine it would be an interesting because he the only reason he defected was because he knew he couldn't go back. Right. So it's not because he necessarily didn't believe believe, but because of the opportunity. Sure. So I imagine that would be a way different world to live in than somebody, you know, like those other two women who are like, who are like, we've got to get out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a a necessity. So I'd be really curious to hear more of his story. And like, you know, now that he's been out for however long, however many years, like what is his perspective now? Mm -hmm. And would he go back if he could? Right. Um, That leads me into my next week's topic. (gasps) Next week, I'm going to be talking about Americans who defected to North Korea. Wait, what? Yes. That's a thing? That's a thing. Even after, did no one hear about the famine? This was before the famine. Oh, okay. I was about to say. Yes. It is wild. It is a wild, wild ride. Okay. Now I (laughs) got to come up with a topic for next week. It's also my first three-parter. Congratulations. Thank How's you so it feel? Much. Uh, great. feel great. I'm Happy super to be proud here. of you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really proud that we're both here. <laughs> so let's talk intersections. Let's do it. Uh, the whole thing. All of it. Everything. All of the above. 1984 may or may not have been written about North Korea in the 1990s. Well, and let me go back up to the dates because, let's see, 1950. 1950 was when Kim Il-sung took over. Yeah, so same Link up like there. right after 1984 came out. Yeah, in 1949. So maybe he used this as a guidepost. Ooh, so it's the opposite. Yeah, which came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. But definitely Great the question. book. Definitely the book. But the book. <laughs> um, but I mean, his ideology was certainly there beforehand, and he probably took the ideas from like Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, but I think. And we've already t- covered so many mm-hmm. of the intersections. But, like, the idea of such a closed society that you don't know what's happening in the rest of the world or you can't trust what you're being told about the rest of the world. Or maybe you do trust it and, you know, you're still, like, being fed lies and yeah. shit. And you don't know. The thing that stands out to me is how bad does something have to be in order to take a leap of faith that something else will be better? Mm -hmm. Um, Or even, like, the first story of the person who defected twice, like, shit got worse in some way, or what we would perceive as worse. It all got worse before it got better for all of those three people. Yeah. But then to defect again? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean... You know, when your basic need I mean, it goes back to Maslow, too. When your basic needs are not being met, it's survival at that point. Yeah, it really is. And I would imagine it would be really difficult. You only have one belief system, and... Suddenly something comes, and you realize that it's all wrong. Yeah. Or maybe not even wrong, but it's all different than what you were taught. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing is as it seems. The you know the the ration piece didn't work like it was supposed to. That system broke down. Yeah, it's supposed it's supposed to be a classless society. That but system now has broke like 50 down. Classes. But you know, back to the 1984 piece. You know, if you are if things are being rewritten and explained away, which I think mm-hmm. happens in all societies, right? Like yeah. we sweep it under the rug. I mean, that will obviously change the way that 
you look at things. Well, so in the secret society in um, 1984, which we don't really talk about very much, it's called the Brotherhood. And there's a guy who is like the first person to say, wait a second, like, this isn't right. This mm-hmm. what we're doing isn't right. Mm-hmm. So there's like potentially the secret society called the Brotherhood that is rallying against the government. So that's who Winston's trying to join when he's caught Mm -hmm. and arrested. But he ends up reading what may or may not be the manifesto of the Brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And it talks about like how everything came to be and why it is the way it is. And they're talking a little bit about the class system and how classes exist in every society. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no perfect system where everyone is the same. Even in, like, this hyper-totalitarian communist Mm -hmm. regime in 1984 and, I guess, in North Korea. But according to the manifesto of the brotherhood the idea is that you just have to hang on long enough for the lowest class to revolt Mm. because eventually they will realize the maltreatment and Mm -hmm. they will like the people in upper society will buy into what's providing them with power right but the lowest because they never receive any of that power theoretically will eventually rise up against Mm -hmm those higher and that they so far outnumber those in higher power that they can easily overthrow them well that was Karl marx's second piece of the communist yeah like his original manifesto yeah that was the second piece was that he predicted that that would happen yeah and don't like isn't north korea super fond of the communist manifesto you talked about that a little bit in the first one well just the communism in general yeah okay but yeah like And I think we see that in every society, regardless of how totalitarian or how much uh, power leadership has, like there are always these class divides. And what we've seen in history is that people will eventually overthrow those in power if you don't keep them like well taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, French Revolution, you know, a lot of the major wars, like it's been because people are pushing back against the power that oppresses them. So so I wonder what that looks like for In North Korea. North Korea, you know, for the future. But, you know, it's, it's difficult when, you know, you're not allowed to have a vehicle, only military can. Yeah. And that you can't leave the country unless it's approved by the government. Yeah. And, like, if, you know, the, the people in the upper class obviously weren't dying during the famine, So the lower class was, which dwindles their numbers, which could both add fuel to an uprising, but could also, um, it lowers their numbers so drastically, like, do they have enough power to make any meaningful change? Right. It's tough, especially when North Korea has nuclear weapons. That too. Yeah, it is the perfect storm. And I have just so much sympathy for them. Absolutely. That is unimaginable. And Mm -hmm. I can't even... Oh, I'm with you. Understand. But, you know, I'm glad that, you know, books are being written and stories are being told. Um, There's a lot of human rights uh, advocacy groups, you know, in South Korea and other places just trying to get the word out. So it's definitely important to to be talking about. Absolutely. Um, And next week, for me, we're going to get into, you know, the shitstorm that occurs when you enter into North Korea as an outsider. Okay, well, maybe we'll start off next week's episode. I'll do a little bit of research because now I, it's so hard 
waiting from week to week to not know answers. Do it. So maybe I'll research 80, 1984 and oh, perfect. Uh, North Korean defectors and like stories that we know from there. Um, and talk about that at the beginning of next week's episode. That sounds great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to head over to our Instagram, like, share, post, tell your mom, tell all your friends about us. And then, you know, if you're so inclined, donate to the Patreon. We're going to have some awesome recipes this year, awesome additional content. So we're looking forward to season two. And what else? (laughs) And a partridge in a pear tree? A partridge in a pear tree. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening.